We are back, everyone. Welcome to Coffee House Blunders, season two, The Queen's Gambit. We've never done this before, um, but we are breaking down every single episode of The Queen's Gambit, the international sensation, taking you not only through the show because you can watch it, but I have my best friend in the entire world, Danny Wrench, international master with me to break down every single step. And when Danny pitched this to me, I could not be more excited because one, I get to hear that smooth, buttery voice yet again in my eardrums. Well, that's number. what's number two? Was, is, was there a second reason? Uh, the second reason I would say <laughs> is that it, it gave me a reason to stop watching. Now, we're in different points in right. the Queen's Gambit. I was only a few episodes in. You called me on the phone, missing me so much, yep. wanting to redo this podcast. And I said, let's do it. I got so excited because um, now I am re-watching every episode, and so are you, to break down those moves. And it's really fun because I get to now learn through you. I have pages of notes about episode one openings alone, yep. but I get to learn the like is it real like right. is this realistic is it not realistic what what is she learning what are you learning what is the global community learning about right. chess and i i have pages here i i can't. And i'm literally pausing rewinding pausing rewinding i guess you know that's why i'm excited about it you made you made you made tons of notes i made notes we've got we've got a spreadsheet here to to list and eventually break down every every single aspect that included X's and O's on the board. Of course, we're going to talk about the culture and everything. But, but it's funny because you, you said that we uh, had this chance to do the Queen's Gambit together. And I remember there were times in our, you know, our, our first season, our previous life doing Coffeehouse Blunders together, where we, we naturally wanted to talk about whether it was a Marvel movie or, or something else coming out, right? And we kept joking, like, you know, we should maybe do, do things where we break down a specific topic instead of just kind of shooting the breeze as besties. But so this, so this is going to be kind of that, right? This is going to be our, our uh, real fo focused um, copy house blunders. And of course, knowing you and I, who knows what we're going to be talking about by the end of the, ep by the end of this particular podcast. So um, everyone can stay tuned for, for the, the twists and turns. But yeah, if you, if you haven't watched the Queen's Gambit, go on the journey with us. I'm going to say that I'm going to go out on a limb, James, and say that this is going to be the, the standard of breakdowns for the Queen's Gambit. There's a lot of people talking about the Queen's Gambit right now. If, if you missed the memo, I know you didn't, right? It's, it's nuts. We, um, as of today, James, we crossed 3 million active users like daily right now on chess.com for the first time ever, which has just been nuts. It's the chess world is blowing up. It's, it's obsessed with it, but, but you and I really took the challenge of, Hey, let's, let's really dive into this and talk about, how real it is, the whole culture, the, you know, the environment, her life and times, um, and of course the chess itself. So, but we, we are going to keep it super focused episode by episode, partly because I've seen the whole thing twice now. Um, and, and you're, but that's going to be the most fun part of it. So everyone should go on the journey with us and, um, oh man, I'm so excited. So you, you ask the questions and lead the way, and we're going to break this down James and Danny style. Yeah, that's correct. You know, and, and I think the one thing, even before we get started here is some people may be brand new to the podcast and we are so happy that you are here and our listeners that have been begging for new episodes. Season one is completely different than this season. Um, if you want to go just listen to me and Danny talk about all sorts of fun, chess, coffee, and technology stuff, go listen to season one. If you're here for the queen's gamut, we are so excited. So please subscribe on your podcast app and tell your friends about this. You, I know you have friends. I know you out there, people listening, have friends that have watched the show, let them know. And now people may not know us, Danny, 
Um, and we're going to give two different perspectives. You know, when I go and watch you on um, chess.com slash TV or on Twitch, you have the you have the chess experts up there, but we have different sides. I am a right. program manager. I'm a developer by day. I work over at a small company. Bat- Batman by night. Batman by night. Yeah, I work for a small company called Microsoft, and uh, <laughs> I focus on mobile development. Danny and I are just longtime friends. Um, I'm a chess, uh, you know, I played chess growing up, uh, but I've never gotten farther than, you know, keeping my <laughs> default rating and hovering and keep going down, you know, and just having fun casually. But I know the I know the moves, I know the basics. But you, Danny, you are not only the chief chess officer at chess.com, but you are an international master. And in fact, the youngest national master from Arizona. That's right. Yeah. I, you know what? It's funny because I forgot we should probably take a second to do exactly what you just did, right? If anyone's finding this because they were searching for stuff about the Queen's Gambit and is finding this for the first time, like James said, please uh, subscribe and yeah, stick around. Um, we're real people. And as James introed himself, he's a real person doing real things at Microsoft. True. I'm uh, that's true. <laughs> the CCO, depending on who I'm talking to, maybe I call it chief content officer, but chess officer is so much sexier and mm-hmm. um, you know, really you know, describes what actually is that. It's a made up title. But just says I, I kind of help guide the chess ship at chess.com. And I am an international master who at some point had big dreams of being maybe US and world champion when I was uh, a rising up and comer. At one point, I was uh, one of the highest rated players in, in the US under 21 and, and top 50 in the US. And now, now I'm not quite there. I've been a chess kind of businessman for, for many a moon now. But um, I think that's going to be a fun part of what we talk about here. Of course, I don't have direct experiences uh, compared to to the fictional Elizabeth Harmon, Beth Harmon. But I think there's going to be a lot of just fun stories and breaking down like, hey, like, was that realistic? How does that compare to your experience or experiences, you know, and I can't wait to to share my chess expertise. So that's what this is going to be all about. Yeah. And you're right. You know, coming in, being an international master, knowing the things now, knowing that this show is fictional, right? Some people may not know that it right. is fiction, but it is fiction. Is there any you know, we're not going to have any spoilers because I, I told Danny he can't yeah, spoil any of the episodes. Episode one only, episode one only today. But is there really any any similar stories out there? Like, is Beth Harmon's story a vertical of anybody else in the chess scene, or is it purely one hundred percent fiction? So that's a great question, and I think it's it's got to be the first talking point about it because even in the first episode. As the chess person watching, I got an immediate sense of, oh, bleep, they really did their homework here. This is going mm-hmm. to be good. And and uh, there are a few things that caught me in that. One, the story is immediately intriguing. You know, um, we're going to assume everyone who's listening to this. At this point, we're allowed to start talking about the episode, right? So spoiler yes. alert, if you haven't seen episode one, as of this moment, a you problem. Um, go time. Go time. Go, so part of that is is because, you know, the you immediately got the sense that they knew what they were doing when when she's talking to uh, Mr. Sh- Mr. Scheibel, for example, and all the chess scenes, they did a very good job of mixing what I knew right away because I knew that Beth Harmon was not a real person and this was, this was a fictional character knowing the chess world. So I knew that she was going to be fictional and this was going to be a really interesting story full of drama, but they mix in real stuff right away. They start talking about you know, the Levenfish and the Nidorf. They mention world champion names. And, and as the show goes on, you'll hear even more of that, where they did a great job of like some of the chess characters she's playing, she, sorry, she's playing, are, are, are fictional. They're made up, but they're also based very clearly on, you know, world champions of that time, right? And so they did a really good job of mixing 
fiction with fact in in the show. I mean, they you know throughout throughout it, they mention you know U.S. champions, they mention world champions, they mention like we said, correct names of openings, and you know set the tone that this is not going to be your average. Oh, let's just throw some chess pieces on the board, and we don't even care that it's set up right. No one notices that stuff anyway. Hollywood, come on, right? You don't even have to get it right. Just throw pieces on there, and that was not what the show was going to be. Um, so I don't want to go too much. I feel like as we break down each episode, we should talk a little bit about the chess specifically in that, and does that particular chess relate to something you know factual, or is it based on something that happened, based on an event? I can already tell you that several of the chess things we're going to talk about from episode one were were not only real games, but but great games and famous combinations. It was it was like a they were constantly you know giving homage to to the masters that came before Beth, you know, and so that part of it was just fascinating and i would argue it adds to the whole culture of the film because james you said you said when watching it like you asked me how realistic was the chess but you already got a feeling did that help you as far as a viewer who wouldn't know that stuff kind of really feel like oh my god this environment like this whole sort of atmosphere they've set is very authentic and and real it feels that way right from the outset it really does. I mean, I feel as though because they were showing the chessboard, not every time, but they often showed a lot of the openings. They showed real chess on the board, right? They had real situations. I've seen you do them. We'll talk about some of the situations that Beth got herself into very early in episode one, but I've seen you do it and I've seen other people do it. Um, but I like that they show the board. Um, and I think that was something that I could follow along. I went to chess.com slash explore and I actually have in the show notes links to the games that I could mimic in, in, right. in real life on the board. And that was fun because I could see that this is the bishop's opening, that this is the, you know, uh, the ready opening. And, and they were, they said it and sure enough, they were not joking. When I moved my knight um, to KB3, like I, I was like, and, and that, that is, is real, right. you know? And, right. but let's talk, let's step back. It opens up Paris 1967. Okay. Now, before we even talk about the events I mean, what a banger of an opening, right. by the way. But before yep. we talk about that opening, let's talk about Paris 1967. Danny, what is the chess world in 1967? We're not born yet. At least right. me and you. Yes, me and I you. Mean, We're not born. I don't think. I don't nope. think. Yep. <laughs> um, so what is what is that? Like, where is chess in 1967 compared to where it is today? What so are the names? Yeah, it's very similar to... Um, so they do they do a great job setting setting the atmosphere right then in that uh okay the scene itself what a banger of a, of an opening you leaves you wondering oh my gosh what has this girl got herself into what was that crazy night before but so what I'll say is to answer this and the previous question you immediately start thinking is this character going to be based around Bobby Fischer because the the best chess player in the world in 1967 the the reigning world champion at the time uh, was Boris Boris Spassky. And so uh, Spassky is uh, ultimately the person that Fisher challenged in 1972 and, and took the title from. Uh, but 1967 immediately rings true of the Soviet Union's dominance of the chess world, right? The USSR isn't even Russia yet. It's, it's, every, it's every Soviet state of Eastern Europe and Mother Russia, and they are the preeminent power um, and have been for years. Then you have... Um, the fact that, you know, she's she's woken up by this sort of hotel person and and she walks through the chess scene. You already see that, you know, the name is of a, of a Russian person she's going to be playing. You don't even know yet the significance of that, of that opponent or how or how she got there. And we'll get to that later. But they it, it sets a tone 
you know, it's obviously a flair for the dramatics, right? There's, you know, there's whatever happened in the hotel night. I can say that it would be kind of rare that someone would go out of their way to wake up someone, but it isn't that rare to believe in a closed tournament of all, let's say the world's elite players and someone doesn't show up that that might've been the case. Like, honestly, like that, (laughs) that's not, um, at first when that happened to me, the chess player in me goes, Oh, come on, where are we going here? No one's going to wake you up. If you're late, your opponent starts your clock and they love every second of watching that clock tick away because they're (laughs) going to take your time. But in this particular case, um, you know, you can definitely give them the benefit of the doubt that in in a lead event like that, that would be a realistic thing. Um, Like I said, you get the feeling right away that she's not quite in over her head, but clearly taking on an epic opponent in, um, you know, in the, uh, in in the person she's about to face. Um, And if we're just talking what the chess world was about, Bobby Fischer was sort of all the rage rising from the, from the West to take on um, the 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 dominant superpowers of the of the Soviet Union, which were Spassky, it, they were Petrosian, they were uh, Carries, um, they were uh, I, I can go. I, I need I need to look at more names. I'm about to slip my timelines, but basically there were so many players that he was challenging, um, and uh, that that would be that would be a really interesting timeline to compare to in terms of Fisher's experience. So let's talk really quick here about just the very first few seconds. Um, Beth, uh, Beth Harmon wakes up in late for a match, right? She's in her hotel room. We see, we see alcohol bottles as the chess pieces. We see somebody in bed. Um, she's clearly right. She's, she's in a cold bath of water, waking up just you know, all over the place. Um, now is the chess world in 1967 up to this point, you know, to me, this is reminiscent of, uh, maybe some, some rock bands, mm-hmm. right? Some mm-hmm. some big players, some uh, actors that are just uh, raging. You know, how realistic is is it that we have professional chess players? Granted, she is 19 years old at this point, which we find right. out in the in right. very next scene. How realistic is it, or is this is this the world? Did I not know that the chess world uh, uh, got party. party boys and party girls over there doing it's- big things? So first, I want to correct myself and say that I, I mentioned all the players that Fisher would be taking on as he challenged the Soviet Union: Petrosian, Spassky, Smyslov, Tal. These guys. Uh, and by the way, so in in '67, it actually was still Petrosian who would be defeated by Boris Spassky. Spassky was the world champion from '69 to '72. So just had to. As I said that, I was like, wait a second. Spassky was the guy that Fisher beat, and that is in many ways who. Beth Harmon's main rival is based on um, a lot mm. of the people who talked about it. We'll get into that later, but, but it was Petrosian who was still world champion in 67 for the chess people who will listen to this and yell at me about it. I corrected myself. You can't um, now. Um, so yeah, actually it's, it's obviously a very over the top scene in that, you know, she wakes up from a, she, she like wakes up as if she had just fallen asleep in the bath, right? Like what, you know, so that, that's a little extreme. There was someone in bed, you know, you don't even know who at this point. Um, that was definitely quite the bender. But what I can say is because the life of a chess professional leads and has led to just a ton of travel and a, t- a ton of time on on the road and on your own, that's really not very unrealistic. And you and I talked beforehand how, how PG-13 we want this show to get. We're not going to curse, but I'm going to share all the all the realistic stories. And I can say that, yeah, I mean, um, drinking underage is actually a very, very common part of the chess culture. Um, you know, I believe I was offered my first drinks at, uh, at, uh, maybe even 15 years old. Um, and, uh, and not necessarily, um, 
I wasn't necessarily up for it, right? But I, but I definitely dabbled in alcohol when I was in Russia at the age of 15. Um, and I think that, so there are different cultures anyway, right, Mots? I mean, the U.S. has a mm -hmm. culture, um, you know, in a, yeah. in a drinking age of 21. And by no means is anything I'm describing endorsing, you know, that that's an issue or should be changed. There are other countries that have 18 is the legal drinking age. But I would say that, you know, in the 60s and uh, the, the culture would would be much more liberal about this, right? And and much yeah. more open to it. And I would say the chess world in general can lead to quite quite the bit of the rock star lifestyle. I mean, there were uh, many stories I've been told by you know my my uncle Yermo, Alex Yermolinsky, and and many other uh, former members of the Soviet Union of of how similar stories like that would be. And then my own experiences as a as a young teen, just being around a, a you know a very kind of loose environment when you're on the road on your own in a hotel room with access to things, things happen. So I'm just yeah. going to, I'm going to leave it that. Yeah. I think it's actually very realistic and people might be surprised how non-dramatic that experience is before we even learn about, about the characters struggles with, you know, with alcohol and substance abuse that we're going to get into in this episode, right? Before you even learn about that being a real struggle for her, it's a, that was a real thing. And that is not an uncommon scene that you would have people waking up, walking through a hotel room months and everyone looks at them and they're like, yeah, that guy was hunt that guy. I, I saw that guy at 3 a.m. still playing in the casino or that guy's clearly hung over or that guy showed up 20 minutes late. His clock has been running. Clearly, he had a bit of a hard time getting out of bed is not was not an uncommon um, and is not an uncommon scene in the chess world, really. Yeah. And this was also, again, in, in Paris, right? In right. Paris, different culture. I took French. I learned about the French culture quite a bit. You know, it's very common to have wine with dinner, have the kids, you know, things like that. Um, so that it's also a different scene. Now, my favorite part of this opening scene is that not only is she running late, she's getting dressed, but then she takes one of those mini bar little vodka shots and then she downs it and <laughs> then leaves. That's my favorite part of the, of that scene. Not everything else, but that's my favorite. Let's, so let's talk about that. Yeah. She leaves, she runs on the elevator, she pulls herself together, and she immediately is hit with those paparazzis. Basically, everyone's taking photos, doing all this stuff, and she is late. So before we talk about... um the etiquette of showing up late. I want to focus in on something here that's really important. She sits down and she is surrounded by men, right? right. She is surrounded. And we, I mean, I know I can tell like, you know, this is the 1960s. We learn about the, the, the sexism in uh, it's apparent, right? It is apparent in this, right? You know, we've come a long ways and there's still more to be done in, in, in all of this, but in this time, 1960s, right? One, she is surrounded by men. She's continuously surrounded by male chess players, right. even in the first episode, right? And even though she's way better than all of them, right? right? And and they very much undermined her a lot. But in this time, in this in this 1960s, where where are women in chess? You you've said a lot of names, and they've right. all been males. Where are women in chess in this? And what does that look like um, in the 1960s? Yeah. So I mean. There's no way to to not uh, to not say you know the overarching way to answer that is is exactly what you said. Women are um, not nearly as uh, you know active in chess even nowadays. I mean the 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 disparity between men and women in chess is still is still quite large. It's changing a lot at the scholastic levels. Um, good friend of mine, Jen Shahadi, is someone you think of as far as leading the way with women in chess. And she and I did a breakdown on YouTube of, of some of the chess stuff. She's actually someone who's been compared to whether whether any of Beth Harmon's character was based around someone like Jen. We'll get into that later. But um so there's there's a lot of being a lot being done. And I think partly that just starts on, you know, at the at the ground level of of 
of girls and th- something Jen and I have talked about a lot. I was on her podcast on um, the ladies ladies night and and we talked about how it wasn't even just chess. It was it was also math, right? And science. Mm-hmm. Let's remember that while chess is the focus of this, there was a lot of, a lot still changing just just within our generation still. There's still a cultural hangover from a previous generation that's basically said like, "Hey, women don't get into like brain stuff like that. Like, like women don't do like high level math or they don't do high level science or, or, and chess, chess would almost be like a forgotten kind of afterthought of that. Right. That was really, I mean, that was a realistic part of, I mean, even my wife who's only in her mid thirties, but her mom remembers a lot specifically and has shared, you know, Hey, like they, even if you were actively discouraged, you were certainly not encouraged, right. Mm -hmm. As a young woman. And I think that, so there's definitely, that's that's apparent, and then you look around the environment. You clearly see she's sort of a fish, a fish out of water, sticks out like a sore thumb. Um, and um, and yeah, so where's it at with women in chess? I mean, there were women chess players. In fact, later on, no spoilers. You you made me promise. Later on, there is more of a direct homage to who was um, one of the current uh, women world chess champions and one of the greatest women players of all time in one of the later episodes. So they do a very good job of that, like mentioning you know the real names and things, even if they make some mistakes. But overall, they do they do they do nail it, right? She's she's an American first of all. She's in in Paris. She's playing a Russian opponent. It's in the '60s. This is the Cold War is active, and yes, she's a a woman in a in a male dominated world, and um, that is exactly she's, what it would feel like for sure. And she's 19. And, and she's 19. 19. She's young, right? right? Yeah. yeah. Yep. So, um, so I don't know if I answered it. Yeah, I mean, I think they do a good job depicting, and throughout the whole series, we'll get into of the different. Um, you know, in this episode, I can say, cause later on we were talking about it. One of the things that happens later on, which, you know, because it's all in one episode, I'll give myself the freedom to bounce back a little bit, but we see that happen as she has flashbacks to when she was a little girl and, you know, she wins that first chess game against a guy we'll talk about. And he gives her a doll and she kind of like, kind of smirks and is like, okay, right. Kind of thing. Like there's, they do a very good job. I think pointing out that people did not expect, expect a young woman to be, um, becoming what she was clearly becoming at a very young age, which was a chess prodigy. I agree. I agree. And we'll get to those points. And now let's talk about something that I think fascinating. You've, you've mentioned it a little bit before, but the running of the clock, right? In a f- future episode, she learns about this and how the clock works um, back right. and forth. So what happens here? You, um, I'm assuming that a, a match, a chess match starts at a specific time. Somebody is white and somebody is black chess piece. How does that work? What is the etiquette here? And how do they depict that in in this type of scenario? Because this is obviously a big match. This is obviously a big match that they're playing. Yeah, they do a great job with that, actually. I I think other than what I said earlier, where, you know, would you actually be woken up by someone who's involved with the tournament? It's possible. It's not it's not probable. And depending on who your opponent was, um, they may not be okay that you did that. It's it's actually you know, sort of not fair to the opponent to go like, you know, get the other guy up, uh, other other girl up and say, hey, hey, it's your move. Like, what's going on? Right. But I think in an elite event like this, I think that is something that could happen. And certainly friends would wake up friends if it was if they really thought, oh, man, you know, my buddy Paul over there, he's totally hung over. I got to go wake him up. You know, so that some things like that would happen. But the etiquette when she arrives that he kind of, you know, stands up a little bit, greets her, shakes her hand. That's exactly what would happen. Um, and then, you know, black would always start white's clock after a handshake. This is exactly how a tournament would be played with the only. Um, so in, in in the episode, her clock is running, isn't that isn't it? Her clock is running, right? I believe um, so. I believe. Yeah. So. And I think that he still greets her and shakes her hand. So that's that's exactly what it would be like. And even though the person who's late 
lost time because they were late, it is still typical that they should apologize, right? Because even if they're losing time, you know, and you could argue, well, they've served their punishment, they don't have to apologize for anything. It's very typical that they would say, hey, I'm sorry, I'm late, you know, or or just a quick, a quick kind of like, you know, apology. I think in the modern era, you would probably get less apologies. <laughs> People just, <laughs> but also in the modern era, um, the one thing to point out is that at elite events, that's really not a thing because FIDE, the governing body of the game, um, which is French for Fidelis des Eches Internacion, the, the International Chess Federation, um, is um, is very strict on being late. In fact, you can be forfeited just for being late. So they've got they've gotten more strict on that, that part of it. We're going to be doing this throughout every episode we break down, not just talking about that era. Was that realistic? But then also... Is that still a thing, right? That's It's not as much of a thing now. It is a thing in open tournaments. It is a thing in smaller, less world elite tournaments that someone can be late and their clock would be running. They would shake hands and do a quick apology just like Beth did and sit down. At the highest levels of chess, being late is just not a thing you see anymore. In fact, very often they're required to be there 10 minutes early for the photos and things to take place. Gotcha. So as chess has evolved and has, there's more coverage and there's more sort of logistics around it, right. sort of clamped down a little bit, which makes sense yep. in general. Yep. Gotcha. Yep. So, so this is where it ends there. These two individuals, they're staring down each other. And then we see a flashback. We go back uh, 10 years to when Beth Harmon is nine and there's a car crash, death of her uh, mother at the right. time here. And um, she is being driven um, to a, um, not to a, I wouldn't say a, a home, but to a, a girl's, um, orphanage right. and there, and this is in Kentucky and that's where it takes place. That's where she was born at. If you go through and you're watching on Netflix, you can pause, um, specifically at the point where Mrs. Uh, Deardorff, um, is flipping through the pages and you can see the dates on there. You can read an article about the crash, everything about, Elizabeth, as she likes to be called Beth, not Lizzie. So there's the three names for Beth Harmon here that we, we get introduced to early on, but she's taken to the Methuen home. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right, but it's Methuen mm-hmm. home uh, for girls. And there's 21 girls total here and she's introduced. So you're, you're taken through this dramatic event early on. There are dramatic uh, series of events when she is introduced to Jolene, my favorite character, yeah. by the way, love Jolene. Jolene's great. Jolene asks her if both of her parents are dead, and she says yes. Now, I, of course, have not gone further, but at that point, we only see flashbacks of her father leaving and, of course, her mother also having substance abuse, by the way, um, as we see going down. And um, she's introduced into this world. It's a dramatic change. She had a, a dark past history, and now she's she's here in this brand new world, right? And 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 this is to me. I just I'll talk about just the show as an opening. But not only did those first few minutes suck me in, I now not only care about nineteen year old Beth, but I want to know everything from from zero to nine. I want to know all those years and. I thought this was a brilliant, just capturing cinematography, storytelling arch of really sucking me in to caring so much in so in so few minutes. I care so much about this this person at nineteen and now this person at nine. I just thought yep. it was brilliant. I I couldn't agree more. And obviously, we're here to you know, or I guess my role if I'm if I'm cap uh, if I'm typecasting myself is here to talk about the chess. But I'll just say too, I'm you know talking about the 
you know, being a fan like you, I completely agree. It was like so well done. And when did they digressing a little bit, when did they just start nailing it with this flashback approach? Cause I feel like what you're describing is just a way to like, it's just like, you see this like real time, you think it's real time. You don't even know for sure, but you see this super interesting, you know, what the bleep happened the night before ending. Who is this person? Oh my gosh, it's a big deal. The paparazzi. And then you go back and see she, you know, her mother dies in a car crash. She's in an orphanage. Like he's, I mean, just amazing the way that they, you know, develop, character development by basically keeping you on the edge of your seat. Right. So anyway, just, I, I agree. It was awesome. Um, it's a classic Tarantino, classic, classic Tarantino, Tarantino, as they say. Right. Mm-hmm. And I, I would say, you know, lost, but let's not talk about lost John Locke. I still haven't forgiven you, John Locke. Okay. We move on. Um, so we've got, um, you know, we have to go back to the Island Jack. Uh, the, the, so you've got the flashback going on and, um, you know, yeah, I mean, I think that, what is it, what is it they say? Every hero is born out of a childhood trauma, or at least, uh, you know, Dwight would say that from the office. You get you get the feeling right away that regardless of the present time, who she became, clearly this girl has a lot of, a lot of things going on in her past. Um, like you said, she mentions that both her parents are dead at this time, and I won't say anything about the future. Like, you know, you, you don't know for sure that that's true. Maybe she's just saying that because she's a heartbroken little girl, right, who just lost her mom, and one of her only memories of her dad, which we've seen, was basically the dad saying like, Hey, if I leave, I'm not coming back. Right. That's the memory she has from the, from the trailer that they were in. And so you're, you know, you're instantly like heartbroken and infatuated and just like invested in this little girl. And, uh, you kind of know there's a future clearly, or you wouldn't, you know, you wouldn't have seen what you saw, but, um, I don't, I mean, there's not even any chess to talk about here yet. Right. It was just like, Oh, okay. Yeah. you, You know, that there's this, there's this incredible person on the other end or, or at least a person who reached the highest levels of something. And now we see that there's, there's a lot, a lot to her. Right. So just, it was and awesome. You, and you start to see here the, a few things, there's two important pieces here. You start to see the addiction come in. You start to see that Mr. Ferguson, I don't know if he's a doctor necessarily, or maybe the quarterly, I'm not going to, I don't really yeah. know exactly what he is, right. but he's giving them red and green pills, vitamins, and what he says, um, you know, are more of chill pills, but they're right. basically tranquilizers that they're given out very common, apparently in this era, <laughs> which is super messed up. Right. And apparently yeah. I did some research. That was a, that was a thing like in orphanages and, you know, and a way to like, keep the masses, keep the herds in line, you know, it's messed up. Um, it's messed was, up. Yeah. yeah. It was, it was super interesting. But you see immediately though, she's in class and she's in a math class and you mentioned it earlier, right? We talk about math and science and how that leads to chess. And, you know, me as a developer, math is one of my favorite categories in school. I love mathematics. I love the logic behind it. We see immediately Beth coming into classroom and crushing mathematics. She, she has the, everyone is working on their exam and on their tests and the teacher comes over to her and she's like, what are you doing? You're not doing anything. And she's like, I'm done. I'm right media, right? And this is a beginning to understand that this child not only had this dramatic past, but you can start to see that genius inside. Yeah, exactly. And there's, at this point, they've showed the scene of the, um, the early, early stuff she was doing with the dad, right? I'm, I'm trying to, okay. Yeah. And forgive if I say that I, I literally have seen it twice, but I I promise James coming in here pretending, I I don't want to ever talk about something (laughs) that's from another episode. So as I say that, I'm like, wait, was that episode two or sorry, go ahead. So I think that the only thing that you've seen with her dad this much is that her dad, um, comes to like the, the, the trailer area where they're at. She's trying to get uh, Elizabeth as he calls her Lizzie, as he calls her, Mm -hmm. um, and, and her mom to let him in so they can talk. 
Her mom says no, and her dad drives away. That's the only thing that we have seen up until this point. Okay, okay. So you see that she's great at math, and you know you don't totally know why yet, but yeah. So you've got this, you know, like you said, you've got this genius a chess player with combined with the trauma, and that's the first scene that they have to give her something to do because she's clearly, like we keep saying, she's clearly different, right? And you know regardless of the world she eventually goes into that's male dominant and she stands out at this point, she's already standing out at the girl's orphanage. And that's when the uh, teacher first sends her, Hey, go do something, go, go stamp the erasers. Right. Yep. I remember doing that as a kid myself. So yeah. um, you know, it's, it's nice. the whole thing. So, nice. so she goes down into the basement area, which is where the janitor, um, Mr. Scheibel is at, and she gets a glimpse at her first chessboard. It's yeah. a beautiful chessboard, here, by here the way. We go. Beautiful, here we go. Yeah. Beautiful wood pieces that um, Mr. Mr. Scheibel is playing himself. Um, and she gets a glimpse at it. And I, you know, before we get into the chess that she eventually ends up playing is, Danny, what was your first glimpse of a chessboard? Ah, okay. Um, so there's two, there's two versions of this. The, the first version is I was actually six and a friend had one of those red and black. I keep wanting to say Nabisco, but Nabisco was like a cookie company, right? Like Nutella. <laughs> what, what is the, what was the red and black, like chess set that come with checkers and chess and like you flip it over and it's like Chinese checkers and all yep. giddy up. You know what I'm yeah, talking I, about, right? I know. I, I used to have the, the ones with magnets. So you'd put the pieces inside, it would clamshell right. up and you would open it and all the pieces would fall everywhere. And then you'd have right, to right. try to find them. And you're like, where'd my queen go? So the, my friend had a, one of those just like little cardboard, you fold in half, it's red and black plastic, you know, very, very cheap, tiny chess pieces that literally comes with checkers and other things. Right. So that was the first time I was exposed to chess, but I have to, I, I say that just because you asked me the, the question, you know, tell the full, you know, story, honestly, but I, it really, we didn't even play legal chess that day. We were like six. Neither one of us really knew what we were doing. I, I'm pretty sure we, like, pretty sure he beat me, but he was like making up rules, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so the real story is I learned when I was nine, it was the summer of 95 before I turned 10 in, in, in October. And my grandfather had, had kind of had a mini stroke, like not bad, but basically he was, he was kind of being held up. And my brother and I started uh, spending time with him. It was like a requirement, like go spend time with grandpa. But at the time in the summer of, of 95 was when there was a world championship match going on actually between Kasparov and Anand in New York. And so that was sort of the rage. And then not long after, right around that time, searching for Bobby Fischer, the movie came out and, um, or it came out like on HBO, maybe it was even in theaters the year before, but it came out where we were able to see it. And so my first real memory of chess set is this wooden chess set that my grandpa had in his room with some chess books there and a little bit of like him explaining some stuff and getting to know a little bit of the game from him and then seeing Searching for Bobby Fischer on HBO. It, it was like serendipity in terms of the timing, right? Um, it, it was it was a perfect storm of, of piquing my interest and... Um, Really, I became obsessed with it. And then for my birthday in October, I went to our, my first chess tournament with my brother and my grandpa. Um, and I lost every game, by the way. And Dallas went four out of five. And I hated chess, literally, <laughs> um, because I was like, this is the worst, right? But my grandpa claims that even then, even with that result, like he saw a different look in my eyes when I looked at chess than Dallas. And and that's what that's his story. But, um, you know, I remember that was my... So a little more than my first chess board, but that's kind of the full quick of how I got started. 
I like it. And in fact, you know, when Beth sees this chessboard, she immediately starts to dream and think about chess. She's seeing right. it. She's playing it in her head, a continuation here. And she goes down for the second time and she goes to Mr. Scheibel that she wants to play and that she already knows how some of the pieces move. Right. right. And, and she, he lets her play against him. Now, one thing that is significant here is that we notice that Mr. Scheibel always plays white in the beginning, which right. white plays the first move. Any significance there as far as I'm a brand new person to chess, is that a good way to learn that you are always on the defense for you're, you're making the second move, not the you first know, move? I, I don't I don't know. I feel like at that point it was more like because let's remember the the way that goes down is she has to play and he's like, no, right? She has mm-hmm. to play and he's like, no. And at some point it's like she's not going away maybe because she's crushing her math and she kind of says, Hey, I know how the pieces move. And and he basically said, I don't care. But as she's walking away, he goes, all right, wait, show me, do you really know? And so she, she kind of explains in a, in a really cute way an accurate way. We're like just a little kid kind of explaining this one goes like this. Right. And, and, um, and so I think her, him taking white and kind of, you know, beating her very quickly, right. That first chess game is, is the scholar's mate, right. We have that, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, we've we've James and I have done our research here, everybody. Yeah, um, it's the scholar's mate. It, that's the first full chess game at 22 minutes and 21 seconds of episode one. And um, I think it's more it was more that he was kind of punishing her. And I don't even know that it wasn't necessarily sexism in him as a coach. But I think it was like, you know, young kids don't just like, you know, disrespect someone and demand to play. But certainly like young girls like starting to it was it would be very uncommon. Like and I think he was like kind of like all right, I'm, I'm going to kick, I'm going to kick her butt a little bit with white. And he kind of like was making her sort of like, what is that? You know, the, the making her kind of, you know, prove her worth, so to speak before, before we get to that. And the next several chess games they play, there's the one where, and I, I want to get your opinion on this because there's the next one is the one where he traps her queen and kind of forces her to resign. What was your thought about that as someone who doesn't know chess? Yeah, this is very fascinating because um, I think you're right. I think that Mr. Scheibel, he wanted to deter her from ever bothering him again. He's right. a simple that, yeah. guy. He wants to go in. He wants to destroy this child's hope of understanding this game. Right. And Beth doesn't give up, right? And to be honest with you, the first time I played chess, I can't, I cannot tell you if I got scholars mated, but I feel as though I did because <laughs> right. a lot it of is, people feel that way. So, yeah. so the first one, King's Pawn opening comes out. You match that. You match that. Um, bishop comes out. Now we're in a bishop's opening. We have this in the show notes below. You can follow along with us. Right. Um, you know, uh, knight comes out. Queen comes out from Mister um, Scheibel, and and of course you're just kind of you don't know what you're doing. You're like, here, my little horsey can move over right, here. Right, right. And within four moves. Um, Unfortunately for uh, for Beth, the bishop is 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 backing the the queen, and there's nothing that you can do. The queen has moved over to f7, right 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 side by side that that poor black uh, king in front of the bishop, and um, there's nothing you can do. It's game over. And I swear to you, not. Uh, I believe that that was the very first thing that I, how I was introduced to chess, was getting destroyed. I think it's almost tradition at this point. If you're if yeah, I, I was I was in school. We had like a little chess club. Um, I was out in Mississippi at the time, and I think I sat down day one, and 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 it was it was something very similar to that. Well, this may surprise you, I, or maybe not, just because of I'm the 
I'm the international master, right? But, but believe it or not, it was the same exact thing for me. I remember getting scholars mated <laughs> not only once, but actually multiple times, like before I got it. Like, because there's, it, it, you know, we don't want to get too chess specific here, but there's a couple of different ways the scholars make it happen. The one shown in the show is with the queen on F3, which is, um, queen to king's knight bishop three for using descriptive notation but there's other ways too where the queen comes to h5 and can kind of backdoor different defensive methods so before we get into that I, i'll just say that you're not alone in that and i remember not only that but as i tried once i got obsessed with the game after playing with my grandpa and seeing searching for bobby fisher i played a ton with my stepdad who was awesome to play with me and i Sometimes forget how much credit he should get for it. Sorry, just random digression into personal personal life there. I actually I actually spent a lot of time playing him, and I remember it took a long time to beat Dennis, who was my stepdad, without his queen. He was actually a pretty decent player, and that was one of my first real challenges. So there was the don't get scholars mated. Then it was now can I win without the queen? And those were a couple stepping stones, not just for you know players like like yourself, James, like learning in a club, but I think anyone. I mean that's that's kind of a coming of age, right? Everyone has to get. And sorry, real quick, Nash, the only few chess terms I've taken him to, my oldest son, everybody, uh, he he remembers that he tells me the story all the time that he he got bored once he started playing players who were good enough to stop the four move checkmate. And then mm -hmm. he was like, oh, I'm not going to do this anymore. This is too hard. And <laughs> I'm like, OK, it. great, son. Anyway, sorry, go ahead. It's true. You know, I think that 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 is that is the point where you say I'm either I want to know where I went wrong. How do I self-correct this, which is what Beth did. She goes back. She learns about it. She comes back in, makes different moves. She's learning about where the where the mate happened, where she miss misstepped. And we go into game two, right? We go into game two. This is a uh, opening a French defense that opens up here um, a little bit different, right? So she immediately decides she's going to take um, her, 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 um, pawn in front of her, her King move it just one instead of two. Yep. Now we're in a French defense. And this is the next thing that I'm pretty sure I did by the way, which is you start playing and you're like, I'm going to, I'm going to, I know what I did wrong. So now I'm right. going to start leaning on the left side of my board, right on my, my King side. And I'm going to start moving some pieces, right? Right. I'm just going to start setting up a little defense. That queen's not coming in. I see what they're right. doing. And you bring your queen out. So she brings her queen out in the third move. Um, queen to, yep. I don't know, whatever, bishop, queen f6. There we go. Whatever my explorer is showing me here. She brings it out and she makes that traditional move, which is she she kind of saw that the the that the bishop was backing the white queen in game one of the scholar's mate. So she just strides to do the same here and um, runs into a trap, which I is you know, which is, um, toying yep. with her, right. which is, Hey, there's a Bishop hanging out and your queen can take. And do you let your queen disappear? And she does. By the way, everyone. And I know James mentioned this, but I have to say again, he, he joked in the beginning that he's like the casual chess player who doesn't know he, uh, James actually created these from just watching it live and created the, the links you have here below the podcast to go to the, the Explorer, the analysis board at chess.com and look at it. So first I just have to give you props for that because that's your description of it is like, is perfect. And actually if anyone followed along the moves to James link or back up the podcast to how he just described it, it's really good. And I gotta be honest, I didn't even, I didn't notice how well the story development of her chess happened right there until you just described it like that. So shame on me, but it's actually a really good point. And maybe a, a chess player at, at your at your level actually saw it more clearly than I did, which is, hey, she reacted the way she did with E6 instead of E5 and bringing the queen out. 
because she had been scholar mated, right? So she yep. she she adjusts and then she gets her queen trapped. And I admit, I admit sometimes it's funny. I'm sharing on behalf of all the advanced chess players. Sometimes we're a little bit too critical for our own good. Where like I admit, sometimes I'm watching these scenes and we've seen chess screwed up so many times that I'm like always looking at the board with a little bit of more of an abstract mindset, I'm like, all right, while they're moving the piece, I'm looking at H1. Is it a white square? I'm looking at the king and queen. Did they actually set up the board right, right? I'm actually looking at, I'm always looking at these things to be critical. But the way you describe that is is a great sort of story of a chess player who loses one way and it shows her brilliance as a young person. She immediately adjusts and makes sure she's not going to lose that way. But in the process gets her queen trapped. and then And then she's told by her, you know, de facto mentor here to resign. Right. And that's a, that's a big moment in terms of chess etiquette, in terms of the way that that would be handled. Um, I know that's because, kind of how I, because she's not, she's not made it at this point, right? She loses right. her queen early on. And if you're playing a normal game, how I was that, um, individual will let you lose. Um, then right. you'll continue on. You'll have lost your queen within the first five moves, right? Because when, when you're, when she's pinned down here and, and you said the, the queen is trapped, which means at this point, there is no way for her to keep the queen, no matter where she moves on the board, back, forward, down, that doesn't matter. That queen is gone. So in her mind, she's calculating and she says, my queen is gone. What do I do? Well, I am at least going to get a piece out of this, right? That's in her mind. She's like, no matter what, if she's looking at the board, there's, there's two things. She's like, oh, I'm going to get that piece and not seeing that the knight is ready to take her. But I'm imagining in her mind, she's calculated that She's made a mistake, and the only thing that she can do is take the piece. But right. what, Danny, should she have done? Or is it just over at that point? No, no, is there no. There's nothing she, I, that can be done. No, she does She does the right thing. She loses the queen. Yeah. But, then, but then he's like, no, no, no. He says, no, child, at this point, you resign, right? And there's a lot of, like, chess, like you said, at, at lower levels of chess, or especially if it's beginner versus beginner, nobody would ever resign. And frankly, rightfully so, because there's a chance the other guy's going to blunder right back and it's going to be a game of back and forth blunders and, you know, last blunder loses kind of thing. Right. And yeah. and I th- and that's OK. Right. That's part of learning the game. And and I think she's like she's like, all right, well, I, you know, I lost my queen, but I'm going to do this. And he's like, no, at this, you know, you're playing like your master, your mentor. If you're this down, like the appropriate move and the respectful move is actually to resign. And this is a. This is, you know, again, the reason I asked you a, a few minutes ago is I wanted to know your interpretation of that. Because like you said, it, as a beginner, you would never resign. But like, how does the how does the non-chess experience world review, you know, view resigning? Like, is it does it seem like because here's the way a lot of people talk about it in terms of sports analogy. They say never quit. Right. Never surrender. But chess isn't totally a game like that. There's a there's a mathematical element to chess that is very black and white. And. In theory, I, I say I use this analogy a lot. I'll use it again. Once you're losing at chess, in theory, you should always lose because because there's the there's the element of um, you're not just losing, but also you have less of an ability to come back. In like like I say, like in basketball, dude, you're down by 25, but you're not also penalized by having to play with four men and a 12 foot rim. Right? Mm. There's no there's no actual change to the playing field when you're losing. So in theory, effort right? Effort and will could always come back because the playing field is still leveled. You're just currently losing. Whereas chess, there's a big concept here. And the reason this is important as like a chess coach is I always try to get kids to embrace this because it's like, look, if you follow these things, you will, you will be able to win with the smallest of advantages because once you're winning, 
in theory, your opponent can get up and Gary Kasparov can sit down. And if you do the right things, you should still win. Once you're winning, it's a mathematical, like, um, and again, obviously I'm over-exaggerating. And certainly there are, there are comebacks. There are times when someone's losing and they blunder and blow it, you know, or winning and they lose it at the highest levels. But overall, that was kind of the level of, of lesson she was giving her. It's like, look, you're losing, you're lost. Don't disrespect the game by pretending this is still a fight. And that is a, that is like a thing. It's sort of an unwritten rule of chess. Um, and I'm always curious how people that don't play chess think about that. Well, it's fascinating because you see, again, this episode has a lot of foreshadowing into, in this case, where she learns about forfeiting when, right? No one had been forfeited before she forfeits. We see foreshadowing into all of her future chess matches that she has. Everyone she plays against forfeits. They knock the king over. And honestly, I see less forfeiting when I play, when I'm watching the you on on Twitch or on chess.com slash TV or other matches. I usually see them get to the end. So I'm actually fascinated. How often do people forfeit versus just getting a mate? In this, in this, the higher levels you get, the more resigning and like forfeiting is, is, is common than, Mm. than checkmate. Now, what's funny is the exception of that is because you're, you're talking about the experience of watching, you know, the most gamified chess has ever been in the world is the era we're living in the generation of chess is an esport chess is on Twitch chess is right now. I mean, if we go there, the chess category, if we were to go there in real time, I'm sure it has, you know, tens of thousands of live viewers. Right. And those are a little bit different experiences, you know, because the online game, I think, lends itself a little bit more to to other craziness. For example, because the clock is so fast and online games are played like bullet chess and blitz, it's much more common that even the strong players will play it out to mate because there's always a chance they could beat the person on time, yeah. right? And that is one element that they really depict well of this particular era. And I, I will, I'll, get, I'll get into that as the show goes on. I don't want to talk about episode six where this is a really great topic. But one of the things that happens at this era, James, was like time was not the same element that it is now. It was a completely different game. Like when, when they're playing with just her and Mr. Scheibel, there's not even a clock they're using yet, right? Yeah, I mean, we, there's the scene, you know, well, okay, never mind. Later on when she plays her first chess tournament and even learns what a clock is, right, in a later yes. episode. So what I'm getting to is, the reason you see more checkmate now is because the game itself has evolved to where it's more comparable to a sport and video game than it's ever been because of the online element we have where even if Hikaru is kicking my ass, so to speak, sorry, I can say that that's PG, PG kids, I can kick him my butt. I'm allowed to play it out because I might beat him on time, right? He might, he might lose on time before he checkmates me. So even the highest level guy will make Hikaru prove it or Magnus prove it because of that element. So what I'm getting to is you're not wrong that your perception is that you feel like you see less forfeits, but I will say at, at the high levels of over the board chess, classical elite chess, and certainly in this era, it, it is a hundred percent correct to depict it that way. And resigning and forfeiting a game when your opponent has you beat is not only the common thing to do, it's the ethical thing to do. And frankly, because these, these events were very much a marathon, they were two weeks events, with, with sometimes, you know, multiple games a day, but even one game a day can be grueling. And so if you're losing, it actually behooves you to resign and save your energy. It's a marathon, not a sprint, right? Yeah. So I think that's one thing I try to clarify to people that makes chess different than other sports, that you're not throwing in the towel. You're not a quitter. If you're recognizing that this is a two-week event, this particular game is over, I will resign and save my best energy levels for the next day. Gotcha. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense to try to look at how like the the game has changed and how playing chess online has changed dramatically, right? There was no online chess in this era. Now, 
Let's continue on here because it gets real intense. We don't actually know how many games they have played to this point. We assume that game three, she finally beats Mr. Scheibel. And Mr. Scheibel says, it's time for you, you know, you need to learn the Sicilian defense. So this was the first opening. He shows her this. Um, I want to talk about notation, but first I want to talk about what is the significance of saying, hey, listen, Sicilian defense, this is your first opening that you need to learn about. It, it, is that the first opening that I should learn? So first, you're totally right. It is the game three that she wins first, and that's even, that's at the 29-minute mark. The combination is a, is a good one. Um, and yeah, so then then she he talks to the Sicilian. The significance of that is that it actually is, again, very good storytelling and character development of who and, and, and the type of chess player she was going to be, which is the Sicilian defense... So to answer both your questions in, in one, James, one, it's not necessarily the opening that the first beginner should learn, but it's actually at this point, she's not a beginner anymore. She just got her first scalp of Mr. Scheibel, right? Mm-hmm. And he's recognizing the type of player she's becoming. And so he's teaching her the Sicilian. The Sicilian defense is one of the most aggressive openings. So for those who are listening and, and don't know chess openings as well, the Sicilian defense has been championed by Bobby Fischer. In fact, it was Bobby Fischer's favorite. This is another very early sort of um, nod that this character is going to be subtly based around the challenges of, you know, the greatest American player of all time, right? Bobby Fischer. Um, the Sicilian defense was Fischer's favorite. It's later been championed by many of the most aggressive chess players in history. Gary Kasparov comes to mind, right? Um and so to answer your question, the Sicilian is actually not something that most beginners learn. What most beginners learn was kind of what she was doing. She was playing the King's Pawn game. And he he gets beat for the first time. And he's like, okay, okay, little girl, it's time for you to learn the Sicilian. I see what kind of beast you're, you're going to become. And you're going to be playing aggressive chess openings now. So that that's really what it is. Now, we don't really get to see exactly best first win. I I, I rewound. I went back and forth. There was a few pieces um, that I could and moves that I could make. Did yeah, you, you don't glean? really get to see it on the board. Yeah. 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 You didn't get to see it. Now, you get to see the mate, I believe. Is there any significance right. that you could see from your high level analyzing the millions of games that you have? Um, is there anything that you saw from that or is it just, we don't get enough? So, so you mean the, the later game where she, at the 33 minute mark where she plays D five mate and checkmates him is that well, between the, the two best first win. And then that one. So, right. There's the, well, the significance is I think it's the, it's the evolution of her character. She's getting, she's now, she's now like better, right. than Mr. Scheibel. Mm. Right. And, and yeah. so that's a, that's a big one. Um, the, the D5 checkmate, which for those who are, again, going along this journey with us, we hope you are, is at the 33-minute mark. And that's actually a famous game uh, by Greco, who is a, mm. a, a famous a famous chess player um, from way back in the day. And we'll say that as we get into later episodes, I can already tell you that, you know, we. I mean, if you've read anything about it, you know that they had a great job with consultants. They had Bruce Pondolfini, who's a good friend of mine. He was the famous chess coach of Bobby Fischer. Um, sorry, Josh Waitzkin. And um, and did commentary for the Bobby Fischer match back in 72. But Bruce is also he consulted on the movie Searching for Bobby Fischer um, with Lawrence Fishburne and Ben Kingsley. And, you know, the you know, which probably until this, I would argue Bobby Searching for Bobby Fischer has been sort of the golden standard um, until this series. So they do a great job. And that D5 mate. I would say the significance as far as the the episode is really just that we're clearly seeing she's now beating him, at least as far as the games they're they're letting us see the board more than he's beating her. And that is a the first sign for me that they did a very good job um, 
you know, constantly throwing these shout outs to incredible games in chess history. And that, that Greco D5 mate is, is the first one you really see of that. And this is also when um, Mr. Scheibel gives her the MCO, the Modern Chess Openings book, which right. is a real book, um, right. which has gone on for a long time, way back. I think it was in 1910 or so in the Ruben, first one. Ruben Fine, I believe. Let me look it up. Yeah, Modern There's a whole wiki, wiki page on it, too. Did you own this book? Do you have this, I, did, I, one I of these did. series? I did, and I do. And I have... Um, I'm looking at, at it. Uh, so there's the, the modern edition, which is Walter Corbin. No, the original one, I'm pretty sure. Original. Sorry, this is fun. Uh, this is one of the few. Original Modern Chess Openings author. Pretty sure it was Ruben Fine. Um, no, apparently Richard Griffith. But the one I had, maybe I'm thinking of the first encyclopedia chess openings. Nick DeFermian uh, did the 15th edition, who was actually a coach of mine when my team won the National Scholastic Chess Champion. He's a former U.S. champion. Nick, Nick coached us at a, uh, a fun event. Um, anyway. Okay. Sorry. I digress. So the, the modern chess openings, yes, is a famous, is a famous, um, book. Um, the ECO is something you hear people refer to a lot. The MCO was like the ECO in this way. The encyclopedia of chess openings was a little bit less, uh, a little bit less like advice and more just here are the most popular variations that we've tracked over over this year's of chess tournaments. There was an ECO every year. In fact, what you use it at, at chess.com opening explorer, James, is probably the most comparable to like an online version of the ECO, right? It's not it's not telling you whether the opening is necessarily good or bad, but it tells you, yes, James, this is the French. This is the bishop's opening, right? Mm -hmm. So the ECO was like an organized uh, presentation in a book of here was the most popular chess theory. This was how the game was evolving. The MCO was the same thing, but with contributions from like the modern day chess authors, right? They would give their evaluations and it was sort of the thing you had to have. The modern chess openings was was the the collected works of what all the best players are playing and what we know about them. Got it. Yep. And in the modern chess openings book, like it, in the early days, the first one in 1910 by Griffith, uh, they they evolve. Right? They every few years there were new ones coming out because chess was evolving fast. New openings were being had, and it and it spiraled from a 170 page book to nearly 800 page book in the most recent version. And this is a fascinating point because he tells her he says you got to learn the Sicilian defense, and then we see Levenfish variation. And he says the Nidor variation. Yep. Um, these are the first three openings, um, I would say. So Sicilian defense, Levenfish, and Nidorf. We talked a little bit about the Sicilian defense, but how does the Levenfish and the Nidorf, you mentioned them earlier in the podcast, how uh, someone that doesn't know chess, I'm assuming that these are chess players that were historic in some point. Um, what is the, you know, what is the significance of, of those uh, openings that he's telling her that she needs to learn? Uh it, again, they're very aggressive openings. Um, and so uh, as, as far as the character development of Beth, they do such a good job kind of, and we'll get into that in a minute here when we talk about when she gets white for uh, for the first time or when he when he shows her the Queen's Gambit. But they're, they're aggressive openings. So again, from character development, it's fascinating to me that they not only did this incredible show where the drama outside of chess, like you said, it's an amazing show and the critics have loved it but i'm telling you james like dude the chess is like so freaking good in that aspect too because they're developing her character like on the board as well as off the board at the same time and those openings are aggressive they're they're sharp they're kind of relentless right is the way i would describe them the knight of sicilian again it was the favorite of bobby fisher so those that is a direct homage to again bobby fisher or at least a direct reference to the the character development 
Um, and um, again, I'm getting excited just talking about it. It's really, I mean, the more we talk about it, the more I'm even appreciating again that it was a great show. I, I loved it even without the chess, but when you appreciate the level of detail in which they develop this character with her chess traits coming to life, it's, it's freaking fascinating. And by the way, while we're doing it, cause I had to, I'm going to share this link with my, with my boy monster show that the first, the first ch modern chess openings I owned was by Ruben Fine. And okay. he was someone who did it. And so I'm going to share with you just so you know that I wasn't making up that I'm going to paste it here to our thing. Um, so Anyway, go ahead, continue. Nice. So she does get white. That's the D5 uh, mate that you talked about, the Greco. Greco? Greco. Yep. Greco, yep. Now, at this point, though, um, we're introduced into a brand new character, Mr. Gans, who runs um, the chess club at a local high school. And Mr. Scheibel um, brings him in. He, you know, Mr. Scheibel, I think, immediately recognizes what this child is about to unfold and unwrath unto the world, you know, and, and he immediately wants to, I think he wants to validate himself in a way because right. he's only really been playing himself, right. but does Mr. Gans have any opportunities? So he comes in, he's very nice. Um, and he asks Beth if she wants to play a game and this game does not last very long. Uh-huh. It's <laughs> so again, we have that, we have that listed and you again, Shout out to Mots here. Uh, there's the link that you guys will have below the show notes, along with um, all the other things we've been talking about. But Mots actually watched this game super closely, and you went in and you made the opening Explorer link. And um, so this game doesn't last very long. I will say this, and again, this is because they've done such a good job developing the character accurately on the board. I also have to be critical where it feels fair to be critical. There, you know, these these were moments where they're going to try to highlight the prowess of of Beth. It is a little bit strange that like a high school chess coach would play F5 and D5. And maybe this is just totally the international master. <laughs> but I was like, that's like a horrible opening but to combine those two pawns. And it is sort of what it ends up being this game kind of self-mates himself where he plays this really bad, um, really bad opening that ultimately Beth just destroys when she's white, which is so it's really not a bad thing. I mean, they they but because Mr. Mr. Gans is set up to be hey, this guy is going to be better than Mr. Scheibel. This guy's the chess coach at the high school. I'm bringing in someone else. You get a little bit surprised at first when I saw that on the board. I was like, okay, but okay, overall, the, the story is is still what you expect, which is he he sits down against against this young lady who also destroys him, despite his bad opening and my critics and my, my critiques of that. Um, and um, And that's the scene where I already referenced earlier, right? That's the scene where after she crushes him, he gives her a doll, right? You remember yeah. that? I do. And, and this was a really hard one for me to emulate because they only show the first two moves and then right. they get to the opening. So in my mind, I, uh, this board that you see, I cannot tell you if it's a one-to-one -one depiction of the actual moves, but it is a depiction of what would have happened to get into the state, um, around the seventh move or so that has her Bishop pinning his, his, um, King with a queen backing and a knight um, basically checkmating, right, in, in, in seven moves and yep. game over. The um, Yeah, the move order you had is, isn't is exactly um, what, ha what had. We'll, we'll share both because yours is actually freaking phenomenal that you were able to replicate that. We actually had um, one of our uh, guys who authors a ton of lessons at chess.com. One of his jobs was to go through and, and do it. And so the opening uh, that, that goes there a little different, but uh, eventually the final position is exactly what you had on the board. And... Um, 
yeah. And, and she basically just, you know, blows him, blows him off the board. And, um, the, um, yeah, I mean, I don't even know what else to say. Yeah, the chess is real. She crushes him. Um, yeah, yeah, and then and and then she does her first simultaneous. She decides to play yep. Gans and Scheibel at the same time, uh, destroying here. So this is a this is a fascinating one too. I mean, this is quick, right? I mean, I don't know. I mean, this is her fifth game, sixth game, something like that. Right. But now she's playing two people at the same time to be able to juggle this. I mean, this just shows to the caliber that they're trying to depict in this game. Because I could barely, I can barely play one game. <laughs> well, it, it, it remember like it, it's what you said too, right? We don't know how many times she's played Scheibel at this point, and sure. and also one of the things that um, one of the things that we've we've skipped past a little bit is is all the scenes where they show her lying down at night, right? And and mm-hmm. sort of taking taking these pills, whatever they are, some sort of amphetamine or chill, you know. I, it was, do we even know what the drug is, by the way? Not to get into paraphernalia on the on the on the podcast, but I'm I don't know exactly what some sort of speed, right? I, I don't know what it is, but it's I, it's some sort of tranquilizer. It's sort of a okay. downer, I believe. That's uh, okay. So the opposite, yeah. I guess. Mm-hmm. Um. Anyway, but so I I do think that uh, it is sort of implied that she's not only obsessed with this game, she's probably played many games with Scheibel at this point, and she's obsessed with the game in her head at night. And for those. Uh, wondering, do chess players all dream of chess at night like that? The answer is no. And um, <laughs> if you are, normally it's another form of obsession. Like we said, she's taking, she's essentially drugging herself so she can get more and more down the rabbit hole of her obsession. Um, and, um, but I will say this, getting even back to the Simo, like you said, it's 100% real. And in fact, um, the game where she beats Mr. Scheibel, um, she she crushes him with this, with this bishop to g5 check and and he actually resigns before even taking the bishop and letting her maiden we see him knock down his king mm-hmm. which is the first time you see that and then really the the other game is the one that's super fascinating all of a sudden the camera pans over you see she is playing both of them at once um clearly she didn't care much for the doll that mr mr gans tried to give her right and in the garbage he, and, <laughs> right and he's making a move and she gets up like she's essentially bored bored and, yeah her face they zoom in on yeah. her face yeah, she 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 does that thing where she puts her elbows down and looks at him first, clearly just like yeah. you're not even this is you don't you don't even recognize how I'm little you, you. I'm about to, I'm just, she knew. Right. So she gets right. up after staring him down and does a blindfold. Basically, she's right. not looking at the board. That's crazy. Right. And, and that finish is is a famous game. It's it's actually a game ready Tartikauer. Uh, from Vienna, 1910. So again, I mentioned the Greco homage um, sort of shout out. And then Ready Tartikauer is a game after that. And one of the things you'll notice throughout um, the show, I I can't remember knowing all seven episodes if they ever break this timeline, but I want to say at the very least, I'm right overall that one of the things they do, James, is the shows, uh, sorry, the, the games actually evolve in time. Meaning mm. the Greco was like, like the first game from like the 1800s, right? Then this ready Tartikauer game from Vienna 1910 is that much further along. The games that they, that they are referencing, um, a lot of times they are original, but when they are referencing these famous finishes, they, they evolve in the timeline of chess. And that's just a super cool thing. We'll get into that in later episodes, but the ready Tartikauer finish with the queen sacrifice, she says, and then, you know, she, whatever she announces that it's mate in three, you know, it's, 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 you know, the queen and then the bishop, and then it's checkmate on the next move. It's not only a legal chess position at this point as the chess player watching the show, I was like, okay, 
Okay. Okay. They. Okay. You got. You have my attention officially. Okay. You. You are not going to screw this up clearly, and that's a famous finish. And the fact that she does it in a blindfold manner is, is even more fascinating. And by the way, it's not unrealistic of a player who, um, no way anyone in five games would get there. But given the assumption that she's obsessed with this game and has like you know really gotten better with her with her kind of coach, Mr. Scheibel, um, that's not an unrealistic thing. A lot of people assume when they first see people playing blindfold chess or simuls, James, that it's like some sort of parlor trick, right? Like, what's the trick, right? What's the, what is the, you know, the other person's in on it or whatever. But chess is very much a language in that way. Like, once you kind of master it and know how to speak it, you don't always have to look at it. The board is is really just a medium to communicate your your move and thoughts to your opponent. So I'm sorry for the long-winded answer, but I really want to clarify to people like that's not an unrealistic thing that a chess prodigy would be able to do. In fact, you know, many times in chess tournaments as we would travel in the car, I mean, we would play blindfold games against each other. It's something, it's a muscle you want to develop. And she, and she does it obviously in fine fashion with their, with their shout out to the ready Tartakauer Vienna victory. So that's cool to know the, the background but, but behind them, because that's one thing I wouldn't know actually is that these are references to historic matches uh, and openings, right? I think I know about the openings, but I don't know about the matches. So it's really cool that um, you and the team have sort of done this diagnostics and deep dive into the matches and where they're coming from. And uh, right. that's really cool to me. I almost want to put some some links into the show notes to those as well. And, you know, you mentioned the the playing, you know, the movements of the hand sort of, you know, into, you know, drugged yourself a little bit. But then we get to this very fascinating um, point in the in the in the in the show, it's sort of the end of the chess for the show. Which is, uh, Mr. Gans comes back and he wants Beth to do a simul, a simultaneous right. match against the high school chess club, and he describes what that is. Um, you know that she's going to play all these players at the same time. I've seen you do this as a coach walking around with the kids. There was a video I think on YouTube. I remember you doing that. Um, this is this is fascinating because the you know Mrs. Deerdorfer she doesn't want Beth to go alone, so he has um, another uh, individual from the school. She comes along. And there's, there has to be some significance here because she asks Beth, do you play the King's Gambit? And can you break that sentence down? What is the, what's going on there? Like, you know, obviously the show is called the Queen's Gambit. Right. When do, when do we, do we see the Queen's Gambit in this show, in this simul? What, and how does that differ from the King's Gambit? Like what, 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 what is the significance of these things? So the, the, the Queen's Gambit is first reference, and I believe this is in episode one where he lets her play. Um, sorry, he lets her play white for the first time in episode one. I'm correct about that, right? And but there's also this scene where he plays the Queen's pawn forward, and she says, "What's that? That's different, right?" Um, mm. And and the reason that's an important uh, reference is because all the other things you mentioned, the Levenfish, the Sicilian. The scholars made the knight of Sassoon. Those are all E4 openings, and she's been playing black against E4. Uh, so then he gives her white, you know, for the first time. And then we're back to him teaching her where, where he plays the D pawn, which is the queen's pawn. Um, and in theory, it is kind of actually a mistake to immediately call the D4 move the queen's gambit, because actually the queen's gambit is not official until a couple more moves. You can play the queen's pawn, and it's not the queen's gambit. But okay, regardless, the significance, I believe, of your question was that She's asking her if she plays the King's Gambit. And I guess I, I actually don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm having to think here of the symbolism. I mean, I, the King's Gambit is not like the Queen's Gambit. It's not the D4 Queen's Pawn game that Mr. Scheibel teaches her. Um, and 
as far as we know at this point, she does not play the King's Gambit. You know, I don't know what they were trying to do there. If they're trying to make it so that, um, you know, that, that the, I, I forget her name. You were just mentioning the kind of the head, the head lady there that she knows chess enough to ask that. I actually don't even know. I mean, honestly, I don't know how to answer that. What, what the significance of the King's Gambit is besides this, the King's Gambit is like the polar opposite of the Queen's Gambit as far I as see. openings go. And, and so she, so she's like, no, I don't. Right. So right. No, she, she right. clearly that's not her. All right. So let's get to the chess club match again. We're, 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 we end the chess where we started the chess, um, which is Beth enters a room and then she's surrounded by, um, a bunch people. of, a bunch of people and a bunch of right. white, white guys playing chess. Um, and these are all the high school students who come in all cocky. They come right. in so yeah. cocky. They don't know what about to hit them. I love them. Charles Levy, um, who is apparently the top chess player yeah, yeah. here is on board one. Now let's talk about this because I learned a lot from watching this uh, for this whole episode for the second time. But I wrote down, right? So she starts on the first one, goes to the next one. Um, what's the etiquette here? They she's she looks back as she's going through. Yeah. Um, and I don't know if you could break down, I don't know if she played the same move on every board. I, I couldn't really dial in there. But he goes, Mr. Gans goes, they can't play until you've gotten through everybody the first round. Like, what what is a simul? How does that work? And is it this accurate today of what they depicted in in this era? Yep, a hundred percent accurate and and super well done. And I believe she is playing she is playing different moves. But you're right, they kind of come in. And by the way, the way they set up the simul in the U shape, I've seen shows that don't do it that way. That's a hundred percent how a simul would be. You would start on one end of the U and work your way around. And yes, it is etiquette that in a simul, the person does not move until the simul giver is in front of them. I think that. You know, who knows why that was started? I mean, many, many moons ago, way before my time, maybe it was because, you know, the etiquette is don't mess with the board when someone's not looking, right? It's like, like, you don't want to make it like they're not looking and what are you going to do with the pieces? Mm. With grandmasters and, and people that are super talented that would play simuls, that's not really a risk. I've literally played simuls with dozens and dozens of players where I go to a board and someone did like cheat. Like literally they changed something and maybe they did it as a joke. Like they took mm. my queen off the board or something like that. And I immediately notice even with, you know, dozens of games going. Um, and so that's, it's not really the case because they would cheat. It's just the, it's just the ethical thing to do that you wait for the simul giver. Um, and so that's kind of a cool thing. It's her first experience of sort of learning that. Um, and I, and I love the way that whole scene goes. She obviously destroys them. And that scene continues while she's both playing chess and now sort of recapping it with, with Mr. Scheibel, right? She's eating chocolates and recapping it. And, and it's still sort of happening in real time. And I love the way she talks about it. everything she references, by the way, is totally real. Like she's one of the, my, my favorite scenes is she's like, you know, they didn't know what to do. You know, they, they kept making their backward pawns, right? Which is a real chess term, which is awesome. Mm -hmm. um, and it is, it, it is kind of an advanced thing that like, Players who aren't as good as her would not appreciate what a backward pawn is, which is a positional weakness that is um, that is has like long lasting negative effects. A, a backward pawn is a is a is a big positional mistake. It's not like you would think you hung your queen, but it's a it's it's a funny way that she talks about it. Like she's talking down to them. Right. They didn't even know how to deal with backward pawns. Right. And they left their pieces and I was forking them everywhere. It's just the whole dialogue there is is really hilarious. Yeah, I wrote that down. I really, I really did like that. Yeah, she says, you know, they're backward pawns and they're wide open for forks. These are things I have no idea what she's talking about. So I'm glad you could describe those there. Yeah. Describe a describe a fork for us really quick. What's happening there that she's talking about? So a, a fork is where you attack two pieces at once. Mm. Um, and so it's another term is just a double attack. Um, 
but a fork specifically is usually with a knight or a pawn. Um, and uh, it's because the actual shape of a knight or a pawn on the chessboard attacking two different things sort of creates a fork. Like if you imagine that a knight is, is attacking two pieces at once, one is on one side, one is on the other, there's a visual fork mentally, and, and the same with a pawn, because a pawn attacks diagonally. It quite literally looks like a fork if you were attacking two pieces at once. So so usually the term fork is a tactic referring to a knight or a pawn, um, but you it, you can also loosely use it to refer to any type of double attack. You're, you're forking someone's pieces, um, and uh, usually a, a sloppy a sloppy player will leave multiple pieces undefended, which would allow for a double attack of, of two pieces at once. So um, anyway, again, the main thing is completely correct terminology, kind of kind of funny and silly that she does it with a mouthful of chocolates, like you know. And you've got Mr. Scheibel, you can imagine, just super proud, right? And she's like, "I did it, you know, I destroyed them," kind of thing. Yeah, and you could you could tell that there was some relationship forming here that is long lasting. Again, foreshadowing. One of my favorite parts in the middle, actually, when Mister Gans goes and he wants to take a photo, and she she puts her hand on Mister Scheibel's shoulder. Very significant, looking up to 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 Mister Scheibel in general. Right. Now, this is the last of the chess that we see, and this um, starts to become a, a very interesting spiral for Beth because these tranquilizers that we've been talking about are now outlawed. Right, she she knocks out everybody in this mm -hmm. in this tournament, destroys Charles Charles Levy in this, and um, and now we learn that all of those things, her addiction, those those visions she had in her head, her training, have now been outlawed. And we go through more of this. We'll talk about it through a lot of the series. Right, we see we see not only real signs, we see subtle signs of of sexism um, mm -hmm. throughout the chess game, but also in this orphanage, the things that they're they're teaching. Um, there's reference, uh, early on of, of how like proper etiquette and things like mm -hmm. the proper etiquette for a lady that, right. um, she isn't here for, you know, she, you know, Beth is here as a strong, independent, brilliant, um, woman who's about to destroy the world in chess, which, which I, which I love is just, I love this strong character that, that Beth has and she's smart, right? She's clever. Right. Um, the final scene that we see is she breaking in to the little, um, area where all these pills are at and she gets a little greedy at there might be some foreshadowing here too by right. the way she gets yeah. a, she goes a little bit a little bit too much she goes back for the bowl and then <laughs> just downs a, little, a little, mouthful of of tranquilizer well and, and it's it's back to like the not not the chess part of it but like you know just how great they're developing the story of this right because you we already know what we saw in the beginning of the show right yeah. was clearly a night where you know, it's okay for everyone to have a good time, but clearly maybe they lost a little bit of control, right? Yeah. Which is what you see in the apartment, the people still sleeping, the fact that she wakes up almost drowning in a bath, she's late for a chess game, so enough said. Then you know that she's got all this trauma, so clearly you're looking at, you know, what we know. Like, people go through rough times and tough things, and if you don't deal with trauma, like, maybe you develop other ways of, of coping, right? And very common that, you know, substance abuse is something that, you know, people in those scenarios might struggle with. And then it goes to this end of this episode where, yes, we've had all this amazing chess and developed this character, but hey, let's not forget, this is a super damaged human being who now has had her sort of lifeline, this drug that she's become addicted to, taken from her. And, you know, she's going to struggle. She's going to struggle with like self-control for the rest of the show, right? And so I can say that without even foreshadowing this episode. Like you just know right away, like, okay, that's how episode one ends. It's super powerful. She's an amazing potential talent who's got a ton of issues and then bam, overdoses on, on, um, on this downer and hits the floor, right? And it's just going to be an awesome show for right from there. 
That's what had me hooked, and uh, hopefully it hooked everyone as well. And that is our breakdown of openings, which um, these names of these episodes, uh, I believe, have some real meaning behind them. We'll continue on this. And obviously, we mentioned that 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 she was learning the openings. We broke right. down the openings. This was her opening of the series. This was her learning openings, and it was her, her introduction uh, and opening into the chess world. So a lot of... I love the foreshadowing. I love the um, just the the different meaning that they're putting behind this, right? The 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 book, the references, just everything they do, and they'll continue doing this through uh, the series. And and we'll be here with you every part of the way as we come back uh, next week um, with exchanges, um, which yeah. is episode two. Episode two, foreshadowing, as you said, the name of uh, of each episode, by the way, a direct reference to chess, right? Openings is is directly referencing the first stage of, of a game. And Mott said all the other things it's kind of, you know, subtly referencing. But the opening stage, we know there's a middle game and an end game um, in uh, in chess. And so exchanges, what does that mean, right? We got some exchanges of characters and all kinds of experiences. And uh, like Motsi said, we're going to be back. I cannot wait for episode two. This was a ton of fun. I think I think I think every one of our breakdowns is going to be, you know, is going to be kind of like this. So hopefully you enjoyed it and uh, give us your give us your share, give us your like, give us your sub. I'm supposed to ask for all those things, right, James? Or is that you know do, do people who are cool still ask for all those things? I think so. Uh, yes. If okay. you en- if you enjoy this episode, <laughs> please head over to blunders.fm. Um, there's ways that you can share the podcast with all of your friends and family. That's the biggest thing that will help this show. You can also leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from. Blunders.fm is the archive. It's where you'll find all the new episodes. But you know the best thing that you can do is hit that subscribe button. And of course, give us feedback. What else do you want to hear? What are some things that you maybe found in the episode. Yeah, um, did we miss anything? Did we, did yeah. we feel like we didn't give anything that happened in the episode the proper love and attention? Because honestly, if we get that feedback, maybe we can start you know, our episodes with a little bit of a shout out to those who give us feedback and comments. If there was anything from openings that we missed, please give us your feedback and uh, we will we'll do it. We'll, 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 we'll talk about it. If we, if we missed anything important, I want to know. There you go. Blunders.fm. There's a contact button up there. Let us know or just hit us up on Twitter. Thank you, Danny, so much for every little bit of goodness in this. I, I really appreciate oh, it. I dude, love talking thank to you. you. I just, oh, man, I just miss this so much. I hope people go check out the other stuff. I feel like I just want to go back and listen to all of our episodes now because this is this is so much fun for both of us. And for me specifically, I feel like this is like, uh, I don't know, just hanging out with you, my bestie. I don't want to get too awkward here, everyone, but I love James Montemagno a lot. Well, I love you too, Danny, and I will see you next week on Coffeehouse Blunders. Blunders.